0: Welcome to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast, the official podcast for all things body, brain, and soul. Dr. Michelle is a naturopathic physician, licensed acupuncturist, martial artist, yoga teacher, and aims to model optimal health. And now, here's Dr. Michelle. All right. Uh,
1: welcome to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast. I have an awesome guest with me today, my colleague and um, kindred spirit, Dr. Daniel Chong. Welcome, Daniel.
0: Hello. Hi. How, nice. how would you nice. like nice to be me here.
1: to address you? Yeah, thank you for taking the time. How would you like me to address you?
0: Uh, anything nice would be fine, but Daniel's good. <laughs>
1: okay. okay. Welcome to this dude here. Um, <laughs> so I... Uh, just a quick history. Dr. Dana Chong is a naturopath and um, colleague of mine, and we don't know each other in a human person person yet, (laughs) but we've been connecting on social media and and across some of our naturopathic platforms. And I've just been really interested in um, what you've been, you know, talking about, especially during this pandemic and Um, I would love to start perhaps with just hearing a little bit about you and your background and how you
0: came into our profession. Sure Um, it's been a while now Uh, I've been I've been I'm in my 21st year of practice um, and I I grew up in Hawaii and uh, came to Oregon for for college just thinking I was going to be a I wanted to be a surgeon at that point. My dad was a as a retired surgeon, and it's strange to think about that now, but I did that's how I started out. And so I was always interested in health and you know kind of like interested in when people were sick and trying to help and figure out what what was going on with them or friends that injured themselves. I was always sort of interested in in being some type of doctor. Um, but then I started realizing as I matured um, a little bit, Um, that I didn't really like certain aspects of it, which it was kind of always in the back of my mind. Like I didn't like taking aspirin. If I got a headache, I didn't really know why. Um, But over time, I just kind of started realizing through my early college years that I didn't really want to go that route, but I had no idea about anything else out there. Cause again, I was like conventional doctor family. And so um, I started uh, just investigating things and learning about chiropractic and acupuncture and then still didn't know anything about naturopathic medicine and literally this is back in the pre-website days um i was like walking through a building in one of my in my at my college and the university of oregon and there was a a poster on the wall from what is now n-u-n-m which was n-c-n-m back then with like a little flyer like fill this out and we'll send you our pamphlet because that's how apparently how things used to work back then um and so i did and, and literally i got the pamphlet and it just went into general detail about what naturopathic doctors do and it was like instant i was like that's what i'm supposed to do and so um just basically went straight there and um have been working ever since when did you start your practice? Uh, fall of two thousand.
1: Fall of two. Oh, that's when I started school. Okay, so we <laughs> we just missed each other. Yeah. Um, have you been practicing in Portland this whole time, or? I have. Somewhere?
0: I have. Yeah. Uh, spent a lot of time as a general practitioner, and then um, in the last almost eight to ten years or so, have been focusing more on. Cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Excellent. So um what would you
1: say is kind of your your favorite part of practicing? I know that's a big question.
0: Um that's it, that's it is a big question. Um honestly, like you know, I do a lot of social media and all this stuff because I can't help myself, but I really <laughs> I really like to just talk to people um, one-on-one, you know, and, and connect with them. And, um, you know, if, and when they're able to, to make improvements in their health and to sort of just see the change in them and how they, they, uh, they feel about that and sort of this newfound confidence that some people get when they realize that they have control over their, their health. Um, that's far and away the most, uh, Gratifying part, I think
1: it's wonderful um would you say you focus a lot on nutrition? I kind of get that gist from you
0: yeah, the and you know I've done a lot of different things over the years as I'm sure you have um just you know your interests get peaked here and there and you go and learn this and learn that and um have gone down some interesting roads with that um <laughs> but as things have gone along now, I just find myself focusing more and more on what I call what I would call like the a thorough application of the basics, you know? So, uh, what I really kind of just call like being as human as possible, which is not that easy these days. So, you know, that would in, in, certainly incorporate um, what you eat and how you live, um, for the most part. But I, I, I do really think that when that's really thoroughly done, that that's the most powerful, um, effect you can have on people obviously sometimes people have really um complicated or serious things going on that require more than that um and uh some of which i will work with and other others of which i will refer to other people for but that's 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 it food lifestyle very interested in circadian uh biology effects on health and and um that's kind of one of the newer areas for me too. That's exciting stuff. I think, um, you know,
1: at least for me as I've continued my practice, I feel like less is more, you know, the more simple and, um, bare bones we can get the, the more effective it can be ironically. And I think it's more, um, manageable for people too, and more empowering in some ways because they find it within themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: thank you for sharing that. What do you history. know, another thing we seem to have in common.
1: <laughs> I know. For real. <laughs> it's uh it's good. I well, I mean, I really tether back to our our tenets of naturopathic medicine and I feel like they they're tried and true and I've seen them work. Um and I tend to be a renegade so I veer away sometimes and then I'm like, "Wait a minute."
2: <laughs> yeah. Let's
1: get, get back to the basics.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I hear you. So good, good work. And I'm sure your patients are thriving out there because of it. So that's awesome. Um, okay, I'm going to jump into a hard question. Okay. <laughs> all right. Are you ready? Anyway. Uh, give me your thoughts on COVID and school closures.
0: Um, you know, I will say that obviously, um, at the beginning of all this, with the modeling that was done and The predictions that were made um i think all of the um changes and policies and and things that were put in place including school related things were warranted because we didn't really know uh how bad this was and it looked like super scary and um like it could be the worst disaster ever and so i totally um was in line with whatever we needed to do. You know, initially, I know you heard two weeks to flatten the curve type Mm -hmm. of thing made perfect sense. Um, But obviously that was what, 10 months ago now. And uh, at least in Oregon, my kids are still not in school. And um, as I've learned and seen um, the research that's been done around the world in places where kids did go to school and, and, Um, everything that came out of that it's it's becoming it's become already for me very hard to justify um, still keeping them out of school and then that's not even factoring in the clearly uh, negative impacts that we're having on the children themselves so it's like I don't think it's justified in terms of keeping the community safer by doing that Um, and I don't think now that we know, um, how, how negatively it's affecting children that it would be worth it almost anyways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, obviously agree. And I think the the data is really backing all of that up
0: these days too. And yeah, um, it seems want, one other thing, sorry. I, I would also say like, I don't ever want to, um, discount the concern that teachers have for their health. Um, And the risk level that they would take if they, if and when they go back into school, Um, and so that was also hard for me initially because I wasn't sure about that. Mm -hmm. But even that now, as I understand it, the research is is quite clear there as well. Like there's no, you could say in general, it's not quite this exact, but you could say in general, it's no, you know, different than than that person going anywhere else in the community in terms of risk that they take on and in some cases it's probably less risky than because because you can be still so much more in control of, of uh, safety measures and things like that in the classroom than you could out in the in the public
1: for sure yeah and I I I'm compassionate to those concerns as well and I think um the beauty, if there is one of uh, distance learning is that, you know, there's hybrid options and, and parents or teachers who might be fearful or parents who might be fearful, you know, could still have the option to keep their kids right. home or keep yeah. themselves home.
0: So, yeah, and I, you know, and I will also say like, I don't hate every single aspect of it. I do get to see my kids a whole lot yeah. more often than I, than I used to. And I wouldn't necessarily be um, against the idea of some type of continued semi-hybrid version you know if that was deemed uh necessary but you know what we're doing now i think is pretty much insane
1: mm-hmm. abominable has been my
0: favorite word lately. <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one i'm gonna remember that
1: <laughs> uh yeah
0: i don't think i could so... spell that on facebook but maybe if i looked it up. <laughs> It's
1: yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. I've been using it a lot lately. It seems to apply to a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, and on that note, I, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but just, I feel like um, one of the things that's been very disheartening in this whole process is watching the therapies and the options that are available that can really help people be suppressed and, um, or discredited. Um, or, I mean, even like the example of vitamin D that we know is just prolific in the research now and always was for viruses, It has been for a long time. Um, you know, is all of a sudden like, Oh yeah, now we can finally talk about that. And, and even just in the last couple weeks, we've really noticed, uh, that those therapies are starting to to be somehow allowed or, discussed
0: um what are your thoughts on all that yeah um it's funny uh you know just just last night um i had briefly mentioned to you uh, i was having a nice cordial discussion with uh, another naturopath uh, on facebook about a post i had done of, you know raising concerns about the vaccine and um, which I'm sure we'll get into more directly Mm -hmm. soon. Um, And, you know, as is not unusual, it felt like they kind of read what I wrote and then, but thought what they thought I was saying um, and, and essentially accused me of saying, you know, (laughs) poo pooing that idea and not having any other solutions. And yet my response was, well, you know, you must not read my page very often because I talk about potential, um, I don't like to say alternatives because you can't, you can't really have an alternative to a vaccine because they're obviously very unique and what they can potentially do. But um, in terms of additional solutions out there that might theoretically make a vaccine uh, less necessary,
2: um,
0: there's countless ones. And, I, and I, I, like I, like I said, I posted about... I post about those all the time. So, um, it's astounding to me. Um, and and we're not talking like wacky naturopathic ideas that nobody else would pay attention to. Anyways, these are like well-researched, uh, options that have been, uh, available for months now. And, and, you know, you now have doctors out there who are on the front lines of treating COVID, um, literally like almost shouting from the rooftops about using these treatments that they've found are, are effective, at least in some cases. Um, And, and yet you hear nothing of the the average person in public who just scans headlines. um, hears nothing about these things. Um, All they get is the same old message, like wear your masks until the vaccines are out. And I think most people would be shocked if they found out, what degree of efficacy is, is out there for some of these things. Um, And, and I, you know, the, the most sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, controversial way of thinking about it is like, I think thousands of people may have died as a result of a a lack of um, allowance of these things out in the community to be, you know, brought to the attention of prescribing doctors and that type of thing. And just, I think you probably were alluding to a couple of days ago, the, the American Medical Association just sort of quietly came out in November with a, just as an example, with a, a letter um, essentially saying, we changed our minds and we no longer feel negative about hydroxychloroquine and doctors can go ahead and prescribe it. Which, I, I mean, you know, the... Le- for for most for the average person hydroxychloroquine is like an old idea that was discredited and those crazy doctors that were trying to prescribe it are now like um quieted down like if you're the average uh again person in public that's that might be what you think about hydroxychloroquine if you know anything about it at all and yet it appears as though i mean if there's there's tons of research that's gone on about it um all this whole time showing positive study after positive study after positive study. And now you have the American medical association coming out and in my opinion, covering their, their butt a little bit, um, and saying, Oh yeah, no, you can, you can prescribe it. It's fine. (laughs) So it's just an example of how frustrating it can be, um, to, to, to try to make sense of all of this. And, and I, I keep, end up being left with just this big question mark in my brain. Like, why are we doing things this way? Um, and obviously people, depending on their perspectives, can come up with all kinds of different reasons um, in their minds as to why um, things aren't more transparent and just clearly stated out there um, as to what's what's available to us. But it is what it is.
1: Yeah. I, um, I mean, what do you think the real... <laughs> Uh, driving force for that kind of censorship and politicizing. I mean, of,
0: yeah, of uh, I mean, therapy. You so get you're getting me all like nerve. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, I try to be somebody who, you know, I might have my own thoughts about possibilities, but conclusions I make, I try to be somebody who only makes conclusions based off of uh, known, clarified. Um, factual information. And um, so that is probably what ends up making me crazy because I see the writing on the wall, like in every angle that I look at this whole issue, this whole COVID issue, whether we're talking about how we do the testing, which we can get in later, get into later, what treatments are available um what we should be doing you know in in public health and whatever whatever it is it's like every angle that that you look at it i end up coming up with like the same general feeling which is like what the heck are we doing like this doesn't make any sense and by no means is it my Um, my own conclusions that I'm just coming up with in my mind. Most of what I come up with is based on what I see other much more qualified people than me uh, thinking through it and thinking the same thing, like, and asking, like, what are we doing? And how how does this make sense and whatever? And so I think that the one undeniable thing is that um, there's weird stuff going on. There's it does there's so many things that don't make sense uh, if we take it from the perspective of what's best for humanity, and um, and so while there's many you know potential explanations, um, I think it's inarguable that we're not doing the right things, and so um, my personal opinion and my sort of conservative view on it is um, you know in all likelihood most of it it boils down to the same issue, which is issues of power and greed. Mm
2: -hmm. And, um,
0: you know, in all likelihood, there are a number of um, potential uh, um, industries or, or groups or whatever you want to call it of people who are looking for ways to gain more control, more power and more money. and, have had, you know, ideas and plans built up along the way in terms of how they're going to, you know, make more money, you know, get all of these things more, and that potentially um, this whole COVID pandemic um, created for them a very obvious and quicker way of getting to some of their goals, um, whether we're talking about the pharmaceutical industry or, or whatever. Um, and so it was kind of like a, you know, I, I don't like to go down the roads of like a planned thing, but it was like if this happens, then we know we can do these things, uh, and and do them pretty well, and um, and so you know the the least conspor- conspiratorial side of me would would say uh, I think it was just a, a uh, almost like a perfect storm for a number of different. Um, uh, angles of, of influence out there that, that then have taken advantage of this. And 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 I think that that would be the best way to explain why there might not be more of a push to change some of the things that we're clearly doing wrong. And I think the most classic, more re- most recent example would be uh, involve a new term I learned uh, the other day, which is um, the COVID testing industrial complex.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: um and i just read this fascinating article by this independent uh journalist um who's been researching the amount of money being made on pcr tests around the country Uh, and it's astounding so like quest labs is an example not to call out any particular company but they're one of the biggest labs in the country they they're probably running close to you know at least a quarter if not half the tests um pcr tests being done in the country their their revenues in 2020 are 43 percent higher than they were the prior year um so there's tons of money being made and so you know i don't know if you want to segue into testing but that that is an issue that's like Yes, it perfectly let's. explained <laughs> it would perfectly explain yes. why nobody's going like well maybe we should change this because there's billions of dollars being made so it's the same thing as you ever you see all over the place it's the same reason why you know triple bacon cheeseburgers are still being sold <laughs> there's tons of money you know so that's i guess i don't, I don't know if that's answers your original question or not, but
1: yeah, I mean, definitely. I think there's, it's a sorted answer. So I knew that it was a a heavy question. Um, But yeah, let's, let's uh, naturally segue here into the PCR testing and um, you know, what we're seeing out of that. And, and, and just to reiterate that I I definitely agree with what you were saying about um, this kind of being an opportunistic situation And, uh, I read that book called the shock doctrine, um, Naomi, and I can't remember her last name right now. She's a journalist and, and the big, it was written in 2007. And the big theme is, um, what she calls disaster corporatism. And I definitely feel like we've seen that it's, it's opportunistic. Was it planned? I don't, you know, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole at all. But um, just for the sake of my character and profession, yeah. but uh, it's interesting stuff. But you know, I don't know. if uh, no yeah, I believe that a, necessarily, but I do think it's been, yeah, that's a it's been, term. It's been taken advantage of in a lot of ways, and I don't feel like the the heart and soul of decision making has been about public health.
0: There's n- to me, there's no way you can make that conclusion. You cannot look at what's going on. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if you're frozen. Yeah. Are you still there? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> okay. But that's another great term, disaster corporatism. I haven't heard that one, but that's perfect. You know, it perfectly helps uh, ex- to me explain, you know, some of what's going on and, and, and the lack of sort of momentum to push back because we, we all know that um, money and power, um, work <laughs> to keep, to keep people who don't have those things from being able to do what they want to, want to do. So,
1: so tell me what your, your thoughts are about PCR.
0: Um, it sounds like a great test for what it was originally intended for, which was never for diagnosing, um, viral illness, <laughs> especially not in people who don't exhibit any symptoms. So that's the simplest way you could think about it. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, a great technology being used totally inappropriately, Um, and I only say that with such sort of like confidence because that's what the, uh, Nobel prize winning, um, creator of the test also said. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like reiterating what he said, um, He's passed away now, but unfortunately, because it would be sure interesting to hear his opinions on on how it's being used out there right now. But, you know, the the simplest way to think about it is I think it's especially the way it's being used, which we can get into in terms of cycle threshold and all that. It's it's overly sensitive. And so it's um, it's identifying um, too many people and you know, you could make the argument that uh, number one, if, uh, if COVID was being treated in a bubble and we weren't making massive, um, life-changing, world-changing decisions um, in, pol- in terms of policy um, based on case numbers resulting from PCR testing, if we weren't doing that I'd be a lot more okay with whatever they want to do to try to find as many people as possible. But, um, you, in my opinion, you can't use such an overly sensitive test that that literally finds a very high percentage of people uh, who could never actually infect another person and count them as a case and then use those case numbers to determine what we do in our lives. I think it's totally inappropriate. And, um, again, makes no sense, and again, my opinions are based on the opinions of total experts in that community, also feeling the same thing and trying their best to, to call out, which is something that is as ludicrous, and then, you know, if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of it, um, the original paper written that was used to by, by governments to um, as a, as guidelines on how to do what we're doing using PCR for for COVID. The original paper that was that was written to tell us how to do it what has been totally torn to shreds now by a large group of you know high level experts in the field and shown to be you know essentially. Um, totally wrong so even even what we used to uh to guide how we're doing this initially has been shown to be wrong so to me every angle of of its use now is is um, unwarranted and um hopefully going to be stopping soon but then we just mentioned the the COVID testing industrial complex now being formed and I don't know um, how hard it's going to be now to, to push back on that. So, um, but that's, that's my general idea about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that's really valid information and, um, and consistent. I mean, one thing I was thinking about this morning uh, before getting on with you here is how, you know, I've been following a lot of the same people as you, I believe. And, um, you know, MDs and PhDs and, you know, researchers, um, data analysts, like all these people that are very well-renowned in their field and smart folks. And um, and what's been interesting is for the last six or seven months that I've been kind of diving into this, this <laughs> shadowy place is uh, the consistency. Like, you know, I wouldn't say the mainstream narrative has been terribly consistent. In fact, often it changes from day to day. And I think that's unfortunately created a lot of, um, of us in people about science in general. And but from the people I've been really paying attention to have been saying the same things all this time, you know, nothing is really changing as far as like, their messaging about PCR testing and cycle thresholds and, um, public policy about lockdowns. I mean, early data came out, you know, in the beginning, April from China. And, um, anyway, so I just find that really telling. Uh, and like you said, there's this force, um, behind things that feels very daunting to even try and come up against. Yeah. Um, Can you, will you talk for a minute about cycle thresholds? Cause I know, you know, people are getting a little information about that, but I think a lot of folks don't, don't quite understand it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll do my, excuse me. I'll do my best. I've also now, you know, gone from knowing absolutely zero about this a few uh, you know, seven, eight months ago to now thinking I have a decent understanding of it. But um, as I understand it, um, you know, you get a PCR test, you go and you get your, your nose swapped, right. Or, Swap is a nice way to put it. Um, jammed <laughs> with a with a cotton applicator, um, and they're they're collecting viral material potentially um, that get, that then gets you know um, inputted into this machine that essentially um, amplifies uh, the 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 what you're seeing. So you get fragments potentially or entire you know, whole viruses or whatever it is that you get from a person. And then the machine helps you identify what it is. This is a simple way to think about it. And um, as it's doing that, it's cycling through um, more and more amplification processes so that you can like get a better and better look at it, so to speak. And so um, as you might imagine, the, small, the, the lower the amount of material that you're getting from somebody, so the fewer fragments there are, the smaller the fragments, et cetera, the more amplification cycles you're going to have to go through to see what it is. And so the cycle threshold is that number of amplification cycles that you go through uh, to, to be able to see what it is. And, and the number uh, related to that that any one person gets on their test um, or has done on their test is is reflective of how many times they had to amplify it in order to be able to see aha that's what it is, and so the interesting thing and the and the most relevant thing um, is that research is quite clear that when you have a low uh, cycle threshold or a low number of amplification uh, cycles, uh, it's. You're you're seeing you're you're seeing somebody who has a lot of material in their in their nasal passage, a lot of viral material in their nasal passages, which would always equate to being more infectious. So, the less times you have to amplify it to look and see what it is, the more infectious that person is, and it's very clear with research uh, that's been done on this to to show that. But the key part of it, and the part that's so maddening to people like you and I, is that. Um, once you get past a certain number of cycles of amplification, um, i.e., you're you're looking at somebody who has a fairly low amount of material in their in their nasal passages, the potential for them to infect somebody um, drops off a cliff. And so, um, w- once we get beyond 25 cycles, that starts to happen. You get beyond 30, it's like really shooting down to almost nobody uh, with that high of a a cycle threshold being able to infect somebody else. You get past 32 or 33, it's almost never. And then if you get past 35, our favorite um, chief of um, (laughs) COVID task forces, um, Anthony Fauci, even says uh, past 35 is dead nucleotide period, meaning you get an amplification cycle or cycle threshold that's higher than 35 in a person, uh, in order to identify, ah, they have SARS-CoV-2 in them. Those people are never going to be able to infect another person and logically should never then be counted as a case that's out in your community as somebody who could, who could contribute to further, uh, propagation of the virus through the, through the, um, community. So, uh, And the part, again, that's most maddening is that um, as far every uh, piece of evidence that I've been able to find uh, shows that I have not found any evidence of any lab in the entire country using a cycle threshold of lower than 37. And so if 35 and beyond is non-infectious and they're being allowed to identify somebody as a positive up to at least 37, if not higher. That makes no sense to me. Unless they were just trying to be super sensitive and only treating COVID in a bubble and not making uh, policies based on those numbers, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, and I also have found that I don't think the labs are very forthcoming about their cycle threshold usage. That's a nice way to. As a physician, (laughs) yeah. As a physician, I want to know what my labs are doing. And I want to know that, that whatever, you know, I'm ordering is going to be a reliable uh, piece of information that I can base my treatment protocol upon right. or my diagnosis in this case. And uh, the other factor of that. So, yeah. So labs aren't being, I mean, I had a, a patient who took her daughter, had, her daughter had to get tested for, I don't even remember, I think, she had some other symptoms and they wanted to test her. And I said, please ask the lab what their cycle threshold was. And they were like, huh? You know, urgent care, whatever. Um, And so we never even got the information. Um, And like you said, we're basing like huge sweeping public policy on these numbers. And the other thing that I find so curious, and I'd be, I like your opinion on this too, is that, um, in most infectious disease, and I'd say maybe with the caveat of sexually transmitted illness, uh, infections, STIs, uh, in, in most cases, we don't really test asymptomatic people. Um, you know, even if they've been ex- exposed, like I rarely would send somebody for a strep test unless they were symptomatic. Uh, even if their dad had it or whatever, you know, it'd be really unlikely for me to send them for that test unless they
0: had some sort of symptom. Right. So there's a couple of ways that I would think about it. Um, The simplest way would be like, think back to all the flus you've ever had in your whole life. (laughs) Have you ever been tested to see if you have the flu? No. So even when you had the flu, you weren't tested. And you certainly don't know anybody out there who has ever tested to see if they have the flu when they don't have the symptoms of the flu. Um, That being said, so that's like the most sort of like that's weird type of perspective on it. But when you do think about it from like the pandemic public health perspective, um, at the beginning of something where you're trying to figure out how how spread it is in the environment or in the community, and get ahead of it, so to speak, and maybe quarantine people that are sick, et cetera, or potentially gonna be sick soon. Um, it would make theoretical sense to to test some asymptomatic people as you're trying to just get as a, a as broad an understanding of how many people out there are either infectious or potentially infectious, which I'm fine with, except for the idea that then those numbers were taken and used to make these huge policy changes like, like you've already mentioned and, and literally ruin people's lives and cause people to kill themselves and all of these other horrible things that we know about. That's where, to me, the problem, one one angle of the problem comes with using testing the way that we're doing it. Um, the other problem, as I've learned over time from listening to actual experts um, and doing my best to regurgitate what I, what I hear, um, is that once it's been shown that the virus is quite thoroughly integrated into the community, um, that, that approach to testing no longer makes sense, nor does contact tracing and things like that, because it's too out there. Uh, and this is, you know, again, this is, this is, as, as I understand it fairly well understood public health, um, epidemiological approaches you you only start to really look and and get that aggressive with looking and tracing and all of that if you if it's early on and there's still a possibility of, of slowing of stopping the spread before it gets to everybody else but all you have to do is look at the news to know it's everywhere and um, once that's happened it's really then sh- from a public health perspective should only be about you know, wash your hands. Do your normal things. If you're sick, stay home. It's kind of like the best we can do. It's not perfect, but you can't you can't get ahead of a of a microscopic virus that spreads really easily. Once it's spread, really already. So there's just again so many things that don't make sense about what we're still doing with it. And 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 again, you can go down rabbit holes with that and try to figure out why and all that. But uh, the writing's on the wall. I mean it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you. And I feel like, you know, that proverbial expression of the horse has already left the barn and you're trying to close the doors. Like it's yeah. just, you know, it, and you're right. It made sense early on when we didn't really know the breadth of this whole, uh, disease process. And, um, I mean, even when we, I don't know if you had Dr. Collie at NCNM, but.
0: Uh, oh my gosh. I haven't heard that name in a long time, but yes, I did. <laughs> my
1: favorite, I'll have to just reference this because you'll just appreciate it. And maybe other people will too. But I remember our first day of class and he had a, um, <laughs> he had a slide of, of genital warts on the, on the screen uh-huh. for the whole class. Like the full uh-huh. hour. Didn't mention it a- once.
0: I have a vague memory of that. I think I tried to repress it, but it's still there. Yeah. Sorry to stir that one up.
1: But basically, (laughs) like you know, that was his kind of uh, shock shock, uh, factor there. But I remember him clearly saying in his dry, witty way. And he was, you know, I mean, he'd studied on dengue fever and yellow fever and had worked in. He and I talked a lot because I have family uh, partially from New Orleans. And so we talked a lot about New Orleans and and I remember him saying to all of us right away, like I, you guys need to get on the morbidity mortality weekly report. And we're all like, why would we, do, that's so depressing. And he's like, but that's how you stay ahead of, um, epidemiology and public health. And I feel like we've lost that. Um, it's all become about cases and yes, there's hospitalization increases That's seasonal anyway, but, uh you know, we're not looking at the morbidity and mortality in a true way. Well, right. one, because the PCR test is innately an alien issue. Uh, but also, you know, w- when you look at morbidity and mortality, you also have to look and take into account the public policy factors that are affecting those things
0: also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I keep thinking back to which I hope hopefully will help put people's, you know, views into perspective on this into perspective. Um, I think it was a 2017 was the most recent update to like pandemic response guidelines uh, put out by the CDC. Um, It was either CDC or WHO. I can't remember now. But in that report, you know, in that in those guidelines, um, super detailed, many pages, tons of information there was a there was a graphic where it, it really just sort of spelled out what type of public policy changes we would put we would implement um, on a you know statewide level or whatever it is um, during a pandemic based on the severity level of the pandemic and so you know obviously more mild ones we would only do these things more severe ones we would do these things and the most severe thing ones we would do the most significant, um, interventions, uh, in the public. And, um, the, the highest level of severity was basically made to be sort of the equivalent of a second Spanish flu. And for anybody that doesn't know, that was likely the most, um, you know, horrific, uh, uh, uh pandemic in, in, in human history, at least that we really have good uh details on and killed way 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 more people than than this i think the the last the number i saw was was something on the love on the something around um you know covid right now is being said to be uh potentially killing like one out of every 12 or 1500 americans or something like that um which is still nothing to you know not consider but uh spanish flu was something like one out of 150 so i mean it's massively different in terms of severity and yet in the guidelines the policies suggested for a sec like another one of those were less strict and severe than what we're doing for covid which when i read that i was just like in shock for a little bit like It it was yet another one of these things that I'm like, wait, what are we doing? You know, if 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 what was ever suggested was never supposed to be what we're doing now um, for something way more severe than what's going on now. I don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. And you know, I always want to make sure and point out, obviously, neither you nor I are trying to be are, are are purposefully being insensitive to the true you know harm that has happened from, from COVID and the people that have died and that type of thing. But I keep going back to this idea that we can't just keep looking at it in the bubble because there's infinitely more harm being done via our response to COVID than via COVID itself. And so if we, it's already too late in terms of this idea of like, if we don't start paying attention to things now and making some changes, we're going to have some lasting effects. That's already for sure happening. Um, lives have been changed forever. And, and, you know, if you go around the world and look at how many more people are starving to death this year than normal, which is already horrific. Um, it's like not even a comparison. Um, and so it just goes back to the same idea of like, how are we justifying what we're doing, uh, in light of what we know now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's just, uh, that's what weighs so heavy on my heart too, on a, daily basis is, um, I mean, my life is amazing and I have kids that are resilient and, and handling everything well. Uh, and I feel very fortunate in that, but there's millions of people that are just being destroyed. Um, and then obviously, you know, what we're doing to kids. I mean, I have a colleague, who sees infants often and she's like, Michelle, stranger danger is happening at like two months old right now because they're not used to seeing people or they're only seeing people in masks. And she's seeing that kind of consistently. I mean, it's, we, I like Ivor Cummins kind of uh, invisible blood on our hands kind of expression. And I think uh, I I've been saying it more like this, like future blood on our hands already. And, uh, that part to me is like, you know, it's, it's just unthinkable. And, um, in any situation, I mean, even if you had, let's say just a corporation that was kind of trying to revamp their protocols or whatever, they would, they would ask all the different experts in their field to weigh in. Yeah. And I feel like it's been so myopic in 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 this situation where, like you said before, there's so much power and greed kind of yeah. pushing this this agenda, and and you know the train is is freaking on the tracks going five thousand miles an hour, and, and yeah. nobody's able to to change that. And that's what's so disheartening to me because yeah, people have died from this. People always <laughs> die. Like that's <clears> just the nature of being alive and I don't want to be insensitive to that by any means, but I, I think we're, we're counting COVID deaths as like this, you know, more valuable thing than all the other devastating ways that people are dying from this uh, situation. So.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, that's happening. And the only other thing I would try to add to that is, you know, if we if we lump everything um, into this this umbrella term of like our response to COVID, so all the things we've done to try to, you know, lockdowns and all of those things, um, it's also now been clearly shown, especially in the realm of lockdowns, that they don't even work, anyways. So you can't even go back to say, well, well, you know, at least we're saving more lives than we would have if we didn't lock down, even though the lockdowns are causing all of this other fallout and horrible, you know, destruction in its in their wake. We can't even look to, to any um, real good information to, pr- to prove that they're even doing any good anyways. And in some cases, you find at least observational uh, data showing that they might be uh, worse than not locking down uh in terms of actual COVID death so it's like to me it's like one of the biggest examples of just like wait what are we doing you know at this mm-hmm. point and so uh, it's it's yeah it's unfathomable but it just keeps on going like you said like a freight train and mm-hmm. the only thing i know that pushes freight trains really fast is money and power so
2: um
0: i don't know any other way to explain it so, did. on
1: that note yeah let's uh let's talk about pharmaceuticals, okay are you ready to dive into the vaccine for a second?
0: I'll do my best. do you feel
1: comfortable with that?
2: Sure,
0: yeah, okay.
1: I'm a renegade, so if we get canceled, that's pretty exciting uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have my reservations, um but I'd love to hear your. Your, yeah uh, um,
0: I will say that I think they're a brilliant concept um, and as I understand it you know there's there's uh, evidence of of ancient humans using the general concept of vaccines initially where you know they've, they've, they've there's been observations made in traditional uh, cultures of people where you might have a, a mother uh, Literally, take some snot from one of her child's noses and rub it in another child's nose. Um, so this idea of like introducing a small amount of an offensive, uh, uh, infectious organism into a healthy person to get to mount an immune response <clears throat> is not new, and is sort of like you could say you know it's kind of like ingrained wisdom in in our in our bodies. Uh, or, or mines or whatever. And, um, and yet, so, so the concept is brilliant. The, the, the thing I have an issue with is the, the, the lack of safety uh, testing and, and also proof of efficacy. Once you come up with a brilliant idea, you still have to show it works and you have to show that it's not harmful. Um, and at least before COVID and before the COVID vaccine, my understanding, and, and this is not an area i would ever consider myself an expert in but but my understanding is is that uh the the data proving the safety of all of the the vaccines on the on children's vaccine schedules is is pretty lacking in truly definitive safety uh uh trials and things like that where where things were you know tested against true placebos like saline or whatever it is um versus like strange placebos like another vaccine or <laughs> you know, the, the vaccine additives and things like that. So my hesitancy, I, I would never consider myself anti-vaccine because that would mean I would be a- against the idea of them, and I'm not. Uh, I'm concerned about the safety of them, and I'm concerned with the $4.5 billion that have been paid out um, uh, in, in vaccine injury court in the United States in the last, I don't know how many years, for vaccine injuries that nobody knows about in the general public. And I'm concerned with the fact that most research suggests that only about 1% of vaccine injuries get reported in the first place. So um, it's, it's one of these situations where what I see um, is, is not comfortable to me, and yet I don't f- feel there's a lot of af- uh, effort and action towards making a, for a safer product. And I, I can't come up with any reason for that other than the fact that pharmaceutical industry companies that make these vaccines are not liable uh, to pay for damages if they cause damage. So no company that I know of that's trying to make a lot of money would ever put a lot of money into doing something that they don't need to do, that they're not required to do. Um, so it's a it feels like a big, messy problem that is just sort of being swept under the rug um, because it's not quite harming enough people to get out into the general public knowledge. Um, And then in terms of this new vaccine for COVID, uh, I was actually encouraged by the fact that it looks like the placebos are actually saline in the trials. um, But then I was discouraged by the fact that we rolled them out before the trials were done. (laughs) And so um, You know, I'm a little hesitant to trust um, the opinion of the people selling the product that it should be fine. Um, And which is all we got, really, you know, basically the company themselves saying, yeah, it looks like things are going to be good. And that's literally what we've we've gone off of to roll out um, things in the major way that we're now doing and to issue emergency use authorization uh, for these vaccines. So. My bottom line is I'm concerned because I don't feel like I've seen enough. And, you know, you're now starting to see news stories trickle through about anaphylactic reactions to people uh, in people who got the vaccine and and Bell's palsy and, you know, who knows what else. Um, There's all kinds of things to go into beyond that. But that's my general feeling is just like if our goal is to vaccinate like literally uh, 100 million people within the first 100 days of the Biden presidency, which is his stated goal. Um, and you know, I literally just did a post about this this morning before talking to you. Uh, it looks like the, with the Moderna vaccine, the, the rate of Bell's palsy was determined to be three out of 15,000 people that got the vaccine, which sounds pretty low. It's like 0.02%. Um, But if you multiply that by 100 million, that's 20,000 people. Um, And so and that's just one potential side effect. So, you know, the last thing I'll say, because I can just ramble on about this is, is uh, again, could it potentially be warranted if it was stopping a um, horrendous pandemic? Uh, Even 20,000 people getting Bell's palsy, you know, you could you could make an argument for that. Um, but it's not, there's all kinds of things out there that have been shown to be likely uh effective in helping to prevent and treat this issue. Um, so much so that some people who are you know on the front lines treating it have said when we're talking about ivermectin as as an example, you know, that there are people out there on the front lines treating it saying that if you use ivermectin, you won't get it. And so if there's people out there that are able to say that via experience. I don't know how we can still justify just this head down approach of just like, I'm not paying attention or just keep giving it to more and more people when we haven't even really truly shown that it's totally safe. We're using a technology that's never been you know implemented in this way before. Um, so it just leaves me with a lot of like head scratching and and concern for people without being able to, again, make any definitive conclusions. I could never say it's bad. Don't do it. Like that doesn't make sense either. But, um, I feel like we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, I guess you could say.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that candid, uh, you know, evaluation of it all. I mean, I, I fully agree. And I think that, you know, in vaccine history, uh, usually it takes, you know, eight to 10 years before we can really see the fallout and the safety and efficacy and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I understand that like, this is advanced technology and that's exciting, um, but when we don't know, you know the effects on, say, pregnant women and kids, I mean, I, I don't fully understand why we're even pushing to vaccinate kids in the first place with this because it's so, you know, such a limited effect on them. And we've really
0: seen in the data that they're not transmitters, you know, to elders. I mean, and, and, um, and, just to cut in real quick on that. Also, we haven't been shown that the vaccine reduces transmission. Well, exactly.
1: <laughs> and That's, that's the biggest issue. And, and most people don't know that. I mean, I've brought it up with right. a handful of my patients and they're like, well, but what about, you know, their antibody tests or whatever? And it's like, well, it's decreasing symptomology and that's about it. Um, you know, maybe, maybe reducing fever, well, it's causing fever and then reducing (laughs) it a little bit later. But, uh, you know, I just feel like we're not going to know the autoimmune conditions, potentially the, um, there's so many that could be a fallout from this or a disease that, and this is what I want to kind of like, um, culminate with if you're cool with it is, you know, we're not talking about the real underlying issues here, which is this co pandemic of poor health. And if we can shore that piece up and empower people to take charge of their own health, you know, that's the answer, in my opinion, to, to all, well, many public health issues is, you know, if we can shore up everybody's underlying health and work on some of these you know, chronic conditions, especially that we see in the United States that are mostly treatable. I mean, I'm sure you would agree. The majority of them are treatable with nutrition and lifestyle alterations that aren't that hard. And I'm not saying it's not a lot of work to, you know, change your diet and and lifestyle. It is, but, um, these things aren't rocket science, (laughs) like, you know, to work on diabetes as a culture, to work on decreasing heart disease and, Obesity and these risk factors. You know, I mean, how many elders in your patient load do you have that come in on all kinds of medications? Yep. Um, yep. So I'd love to hear your your Yoda
0: wisdom on that. <laughs> um. Well, so I don't know. A couple months into the pandemic, um, when we're literally moving mountains to try to. Uh, we're almost literally moving mountains to try to ad- address this on a national and global le- level and doing all of these unheard of changes. Um, you could definitely start to make the conclusion that we, if we want to, we can do almost anything. Right. And then I see an ad for a, a new brand new pizza um, that comes out that has um, hot dogs cooked into the crust um and it's like you know in the middle of a national television show or something like that and it just reminded me how you know when i hear politicians say come on we're all in this together and we can do it if we all try that's i don't really believe that because how like how is it that that type of thing is allowed when every single study you could ever look at only would ever show that that would have a negative effect on somebody's health and directly contribute to the primary comorbidities involved in who has a severe case of covid and yet those are just out there like always people are walking home with big gulps this big um, from you know the local convenience store with soda, um, and not being told a thing about any of that aspect of of all of this in terms and and the most tragic part is is it's there's obviously some rare unusual situations where apparently healthy people get COVID and have a hard time with it or possibly even die, but it's inarguable the vast majority of people that are dying from this, which is what is um, you know, causing us to do all the things that we're doing. The vast majority of people that are dying are people that have severe health conditions, like you just talked about, that are almost, almost universally preventable if, if it was done really thoroughly. Um, So it's yet another thing that makes no sense. Another thing that makes no sense to me is that sales of cigarettes have gone up during the pandemic. Those are breathed into our lungs, and the lungs are like the problem, you know, with, with COVID more than anything, or at least a major part of it. Again, how does that show that we're really trying as hard as we could um, or that we're really in this all together? It, it's kind of more like with an asterisk, as long as it doesn't piss off anybody that's that gives us a lot of money. You know, that's a blunt way of putting it. And, um, you know, I think it's also super important to mention the fact that Just giving information about how to be healthy is not enough because there's a large portion of our population of people who, you know, they could have information coming out of their ears and they have no opportunity to act on it because their lives are so crappy and they have no way of getting and accessing a lot of these health promoting uh, things. So, um, you know, we had a golden opportunity during this to really revamp how we uh, approach things with our, with our, population in terms of truly trying to get them healthy and it wasn't even like we tried like any 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 effort in that regard was not even a blip on the radar like it just was not even a thought like all things that contribute to to most of the chronic disease in our country continued right along this whole time without any um mention of them being an issue Um, maybe the mention was more like, don't talk about that because you don't want to shame that person. Um, which is, you know, I get it, but it's like, if we're trying to save people's lives, maybe we should. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's how I look at that whole side of things. And, um, you know, as just personally, it's, it's the thing that it's going to take a lot of change for me to start trusting, um, in the powers that be and their true motivations. If, if nothing that they're doing is really addressing the core of the issue. Um, so, and yet, you know, they are still trying to give us something that could harm us, like literally, uh, in in almost as a replacement for that, which makes no sense from either of our naturopathic uh, brains. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. For sure. Um,
0: all right. So what brings you hope? Um, sunsets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say. What brings me hope on a, on a real practical level is um, people like you who I've come in contact with um, during all of this that I've, I've met so many people that are out there thinking similar thoughts and making similar efforts to try to make this better. Um, and so I always trust in sort of like the, the wisdom and fighting spirit of humanity to like right the wrong, um, and, and, you know, light winning out over dark, so to speak. Um, so, and, and, you know, All you got to do is go on Twitter and follow the right people. And you see people are out there doing everything they can. And I don't for a second think that it's not super frustrating and disheartening to see all that effort and then see examples and evidence that it doesn't yet look like it's working that well. But, you know, it's baby steps. And so um, I do feel a momentum um, towards awareness around some of the issues we talked about building amongst people that it never would have been <coughs> in and around before. Um, so it's almost like COVID is like peeling off a Band-Aid uh, to look at a wound that's still there and not healed um, that, that uh, you know, we all need to know about in order to get it real, he- really healed uh, for good this time. So that gives me hope. And then the other thing that gives me hope is just um, knowing that this is all fine anyways you know and that's what i meant by the sunset like it's all perfect anyways it just is what it is and um uh this planet is going to keep going on regardless of of us <laughs> and all the beauty on it is is uh still going to be there every day and um so i don't know if that gives me hope but it still just makes me smile you know so uh not always as easy as as i could before all this but Still happens.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. Um,
0: yes, I think that
1: just uh, staying present and being in nature, and you know, just seeing the beauty in other human beings uh, is really the hopeful part of it all. And and I think there's this, like you said, there's kind of this momentum of community coming up and um doing things in a different way that are more supportive of us as human beings and and of our livelihood and our lives and connection and oxytocin and you know all the things that uh, that make us social beings so um that's good i appreciate that so much and and yeah. I totally agree. And I think we can. I mean, I know, I know you. You and I have kind of alluded to this to each other, but like it's easy to get bogged down and all the yeah the data and like the darkness. Yeah. Um. But you know, I saw a sign the other day that said, "Without darkness, you can't see the stars." And I think that's really um, what what's starting to happen. And and that gives me like real excitement for the future and and for the current situation even so. Um, yeah, yeah, we, and we have, we're in a cool profession and I think we have a lot of like, you know, really awesome things to offer people, of course, and, um, tried and true wisdom. And, um, so it's exciting to kind of, you know, be just feel that, um, kind of connection between all of us (coughs) as colleagues or many of us thinking similar things and sharing information and all of that. So that's been awesome too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, well, thanks for sharing your wisdom. How, uh, how can people find you Dr. Daniel Chong?
0: Um, professionally, I have a website, just drdanielchong.com. For, you know, for my practice. Um, and I, I do, work now with people in Oregon and California. I have licenses in both places and, um, via telemedicine for the things we talked about. Um, and then, you know, anybody's welcome to search for me on Facebook. I've sort of just put down any, any, uh, barriers to that I might've had before about, you know, being Facebook friends with people because, you know, I'm not the one who, who tends to like post about what I ate for breakfast and, personal things anyways. And so, um, I'm just trying to share information that I find and, and happy to, to, to connect with people in that way. And, um, I'll just sort of keep doing my best to be upfront and honest and thorough and, and, um, not overstate things and, and, uh, and, and just come from facts and data and that type of thing with maybe a little of my own, uh, personal opinion thrown in here and there. Um, but those would probably be the two, the two main ways. Perfect. Great. Um,
1: Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, an insight and just your spirit and your heart. Um, It's very needed out there in the world. And so, you know, together we can all kind of move forward as a species and, and choose a different path.
0: So, yeah, I'm, I'm hope, hoping that that's how it goes and we move forward and I totally appreciate um, getting to talk to you because I was looking forward to it because uh, I like everything I've learned about you and uh, looking forward to more interactions and sometime, sometime down the road, like a, a direct hug would be nice i know
1: that would be great <laughs> for sure well because my favorite pastime is coming up to live shows in portland so as soon as that's available
0: nice. to me again, i'll be there i'm gonna so. i'm gonna send you the link to my my son's band maybe oh, i think sweet. You, i think you might like it from the little i've heard about you
1: <laughs> awesome cool please do all right, all right. Well, it was such a pleasure to meet you in in virtual time. And um, thank you for your time and your wisdom and expertise and awesomeness. And uh, until next time.
0: My pleasure. Happy to do it again anytime.
1: Okay. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Dr. Michelle, please visit drmichellem.com and follow her on Instagram at ethereal underscore fighter.